So on Sunday mornings, we're teaching through the book of Ephesians, and I've had so many people come up to me and say, Pastor Bob, we just came to Calvary in January, we're really enjoying it, we love it here, or people say, hey, we've been here since the summer, so I wanted to hit the refresh button just a little bit and tell everybody, this is what we do on Sunday mornings. We teach through the Bible, and we teach in order. I'm not sure everybody realizes that, so it took a couple of years to get from Acts through Galatians, and so anytime it takes that amount of time, I like to dip back and look at a gospel. That's why we were in Luke for a year. We want to hear the words of Jesus Uh, Now we're moving on. We're here in um, Ephesians. We'll go to Philippians, Colossians, and all the way through the book of Revelation. Then you probably think, well, what happens after Revelation? Do we just close the doors? No, we go all the way back to Genesis and start all the way over again. Now, there's a reason why we teach this way. There's other ways to do it. Here's why we do this. Number one, Paul said he had to declare to the early church, listen to this, the full counsel of God's word. Uh, What that means is every preacher would love to get up here on a Sunday morning and talk about love and mercy and grace, all the wonderful truths of the Bible. The problem is there's many books of the Bible that talk about judgment, sin, death, pain, suffering. And so teaching through the Bible and books of the Bible uh, stops us from hobby-horsing around pet doctrines we like. We are forced to hit everything that God wants for us, and I think we grow thereby. Second reason why we do this is I know where we're going. You don't know what a relief it is for me to teach Ephesians chapter 2 this morning and wake up on Monday morning and know that I'm going to be in Ephesians 3. Uh, The other alternative is to flip through the Bible uh, with that prayer, God, what do I do next Sunday? So I love this. Everything I read, everything I see, everything that, that I'm looking at, I can process, and it all will funnel into where I'm going. Now, not only do I know where I'm going, You know where I'm going. And this is where the learning level goes up. You know I'm going to be in Ephesians 3, so you read it during the week, and when we come together, the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Study after study is showing us that casual church attenders get almost nothing out of church. But it's the people that come weekly and sit under the Word of God and study together that are growing exponentially. Third reason why we do it is we want to draw out of the text. That's called exegesis. The opposite is to read into the text, eisegesis. This is where we take a grand idea we think we have and we go search the scriptures to support it. Uh, Nothing wrong with that. I do series from time to time. But basically we want to draw out of the text. Uh, So here's what a Sunday morning looks like. It's a meal that I'm preparing for you that has milk for those who are new and just getting started in Christianity. It has a little bit of meat for seasoned veterans, not a filet mignon. It has just enough meat, and then hopefully there's manna for everyone. That's why Jesus said, he who has spiritual ears, let him hear. So this is what we do, and today we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2. Pastor Steve got us off to a great start in Ephesians 1. And I want to tell you, this is a chapter I could live in uh, because I've experienced it, mainly verse 8. Every Christian in the room should have it memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of ourselves, lest anyone boast. When you get to heaven, if you interview people, there will be no one in heaven who says they're there because they were a good person, not one. And I'm amazed because this is the predominant thinking of every religion on the planet. I have a world religion chart in my office. And every religion has steps to God. Works-based, works-centric. 
And it boggles my mind because nothing could be clearer about verse 8. It is clear, it's black and white, and yet the whole world is moving in another direction. I did a focus group years ago with 50 people. Uh, I asked them if they thought they would go to heaven. No one thought they were. I said, does anyone think they're going to hell? No one thought they were going to hell. I said, well, if you could go to heaven, why would you get there? And to a person, they all answered, because I'm a good person. So if the Bible says one thing, and if everybody believes another thing, why are we at this point? Well, I want to give you an illustration, something that happened about 12 years ago uh, when I was in the flower of my youth. We had uh, a bunch of guys that would play pickup basketball, and we had a lot of talent for some reason in this church. I looked around, I said, guys, we should join a league, and not some funky church league. Let's join a real league, it'll be real competitive, and get this, we'll be a witness. So we put together a team. Listen to our lineup. I was at one forward, 6'7", you know, former college All-American. Other forward was 6'3", college. We had a 6'9 center, and he was a baller. He could play. We had a 6'5 point guard, believe it or not, for the first two weeks before he got hurt. And I sat down with uh, the guy here at church who was organizing this, and I said, we need to talk strategy. He goes, what do you mean? Are we going to play zone or man? I said, no, 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 no. We need a strategy that when we're beating teams by 50, we got to kind of throttle it back so they don't throw us out of the league, right? You all know where this is headed. We lost our first game by 38. We finished the season one and seven. We lost by 18, 14, 16, 27, 31, and we argued with each other. So much for a witness to unbelievers. We argued like cats and dogs the whole time. Now, why in the world did this happen? It happens all the time in life. Here's what we did. We overestimated our contribution and we underestimated our opponent, right? Uh, we had built our team for size. We found out that the league was guard-driven, fast guards who also played in college who could shoot the lights out. We do this all the time. We do it in marriages, right? Husbands overestimate their contribution. Wives overestimate their contribution. Employers, employees. And we even do it in the spiritual realm. It amazes me. Uh, we think God is the God upstairs. He's the big guy. He's going to grade on the curve, overlook my sin, because surely there's people worse than me. And there's always Hitler and Stalin and those people who are probably reserved for judgment and hell. The trouble with this thinking is it's not biblical. It's nowhere in the Bible. The Bible says nothing about earning our way to salvation. And that's why I've titled this message, and if it was the last message I'd ever preached, this would be it. It's called the message the world needs to hear. They don't need to hear about prophecy or when Jesus is coming again. They need to hear Ephesians 2. And I want to break this down in the three categories of three things the world needs to hear. The first thing they need to hear is there has only ever been one good person in the history of the world. Only one. Now that blows people away, but it's true. And I want to illustrate this. Um, on the uh, flip chart here, I saw a pastor do this at a conference years ago. He has a gift for personal evangelism. So when I thought it, I thought, you know, I'm going to steal this. And if you like it, you can steal it and use it. And in the church, it's not stealing, it's research. So feel free to use it. So this pastor's sitting next to a guy, and the guy says, hey, what do you do for a living? And he said, well, um, he said, I'm a pastor. And... Uh, the guy said, well, we don't need to talk about religion. 
because I'm a good person. And the pastor said, fine, I'm tired, I got some books to read, fine with me. Two minutes later, the guy goes, you know, I attend church a couple times a year, and I give money in the offering, and I raise my kids, and been faithful to my wife, I vote Republican. Um, is that good enough? And the pastor said, do you want to know what the Bible has to say? And he's like, sure. He said, well, the Bible says that God is perfect. Now, we call that the holiness of God, right? God is holy. When Isaiah saw the Lord, now Isaiah was a spiritual man. He was Jewish. He loved God. He served in the temple. But when Isaiah saw the Lord, he was undone. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among people of unclean lips. The Bible says no one can see God and live. His holiness is radiant. No one can see God and bask in that. Then the pastor drew a vertical line. He said, now where would you fit on the line? If God is up here, where would you be? Would you be way down here in the middle? Would you be like butting up against God's holiness? And the guy really struggled to answer it. So the pastor said, let me walk you through this. Tell me who you think is like a really, really good person. And the guy said, well, Mother Teresa. He goes, that's a great answer. She's done a lot for the poor, uh, outstanding woman. However, I've read everything she's ever written. And in a lot of her books, she talks about the dark night of the soul where she didn't believe in God and she looked at the poor in Calcutta and she really struggled uh, with this loving God. And, and she really writes a lot about that in her book. And I think if she was on this airplane, uh, Mother Teresa might put herself like down here. The guy goes, wow. He goes, can you think of someone else? He said, well, you know, I've watched Billy Graham a few times on TV. He goes, you know, I've had the opportunity to actually meet Billy Graham. And he said, when I met Billy Graham, he asked if I could pray for him because he's done things that have been dishonoring to God. And he goes, I know Billy would put himself lower than Mother Teresa. Anybody else? He goes, what about the Pope? He goes, well, that's fascinating. I just read in the Wall Street Journal that when the Pope, uh, Pope Francis, when he became Pope, the first thing he did was get down on his knees and say, I am a sinful man. And that's what Paul said in the New Testament. He was the chief of sinners. So I don't know where the Pope would put himself, maybe somewhere in the middle here. And he said, I've been a pastor for 30 years, and, and I'm probably way down here. And then he handed the guy the pen and said, now, rate yourself. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful tool? And of course, the guy looked at this and, and said, oh my gosh. And, and the pastor went on to say, you know what? This is the bad news. He said, there's a, there's a verse in Romans, where after Romans 1, Paul condemns Gentiles, and in chapter 2, condemns Jews. He said, we all have gone astray. There's none good, no, not one. But then he quotes Ephesians 2. But God, who was rich in mercy, loved us. And we're saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And he told this man that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, the only sinless person. That he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God took all this sin, put it on Christ, and then imputed to us righteousness. And that's called substitutionary atonement. Pastor went on to tell the guy, now here's the very good news. This is available to everyone. Whosoever would believe in God's Son and the work on the cross, whosoever would believe any man, woman, and child would never perish, but that they would receive eternal life. 
Now somebody in this room needs to hear this this morning. Because we live in a work-centric world where we minister. Most of the religions around us are work-centric. We've been told if we climb the ladder long enough that all our good works, in the end, may get us there, may not. And this clear illustration in Ephesians chapter 2 says, no, no, but God. There's a time God entered the world. You were looking for him, but he was looking for you much longer than that. And it is now available to everyone. Now, how does the process work? Well, the first three verses tell us who we were. Uh, Look back at verse 1. It says, he's made us alive, and here was our condition. One, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We had no spiritual life. Uh, We once walked according to the prince of this world, the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, and our conduct was one of going after the flesh, and we were children of wrath. Now look, uh, you can't meet your neighbor and say, look, you're a child of wrath, and you're living after the flesh, and Satan's got you on a lead. You can't do that. But that's the truth. And, and this bruises religious pride, by the way. People of religion don't want to hear this. This, this makes them private. Well, well, my Aunt Susie, she does this and she does that. And Uncle Joe, he's been a wonderful person and generous. Listen, these verses aren't saying that human beings aren't capable of good works. Surely we've known people who have done great things, have been generous and philanthropic and joined PTAs and walked old ladies across the street. Obviously that's true. But when it comes to spiritual life of knowing God, every human being that was ever born was dead in that regard. We were all children of wrath. When Adam sinned, he lost the ability to pass on to his posterity spiritual life. All he could pass on to them is what we pass on to our children now, a physical casing of this human body. These 23 chromosomes that make us who we are. Our personalities, our hair color. And I have four kids, right? Uh, they're all different, but basically they look like us, they act like us, they laugh like me, if you ever hear them uh, on a Sunday morning. We raised them in the Bible, we prayed with them, we sent them to Christian schools, we put them around great leaders, but for all of that, at the end of the day, we could not give them spiritual life. That's only something the Holy Spirit can do. It's only the work of God coming into a heart of a human being that can change them and make them alive. The Bible is clear that every human being ever born was a child of wrath. C.S. Lewis, uh, this is going to make a lot of sense to you. C.S. Lewis said it this way, when it comes to the doctrine of sin or what we call total depravity, he said it's one of the few doctrines where we have empirical evidence. You know how Richard Dawkins and these new atheists come along and they like to say, well, you know, Christians have their head in the sand. Science is empirical. We can measure it in a beaker, but you can't measure anything. Lewis said, wait a second. I can measure something. Man is sinful. Anybody ever raise a toddler? Okay, I don't have to convince you. Anybody have a teenager? I don't have to convince you. Anybody read the newspaper? I don't have to convince you. Look at our world. Look at what's going on. And the Bible says here that the course we were on, we were being led by something higher 
then all these conspiracy theories you all have, and I know what they are, right? The Bilderberg Group, the Club of Rome, uh, the Republican, Democrat. Listen, there is one grand conspiracy, and Satan is leading it. And it's to lead people away from God. It's to steal, kill, and destroy. He's the God of this world. And uh, he's leading this world in destruction. And if he's not leading this world in destruction, uh, he is happy to make people comfortable or what we call the happy pagans, okay? Happy pagans. People who derive their sense of peace and security from everything but God. Now, you may not realize this as Gentiles, and I think most of us are except for Messianic Jews, we were aliens to the nature of God, okay? I don't care what religion you grew up in, what God you worship, we were idol worshipers. Then you think, well, I wasn't an idol worshiper. I mean, that was back in Babylon when they had like the man of a body and the head of a horse, and I would never worship anything like that. Oh, really? You ever walk parking lots? The Mercedes logo, the Lexus logo, Land Rover, Infinity. Come on, guys. It goes on and on and on. Anything we derive our sense of security from other than God, Wall Street, whatever you want to call it, is idolatry. That was our nature. And there was this one grand conspiracy where Satan was leading us to do his will. And again, it doesn't mean we weren't doing good things. It just means we were looking at the wrong scoreboard. Jesus said you could gain the whole world. You really could. You could hit the ball out of the park but lose your own soul. And I don't think he meant lose your soul only in the afterlife. But dead people are unconnected with their soul because it's never been made alive. That's why people walk around with earbuds all the time. They've got to draw, drown out the soulish realm because once you get quiet, and, and it's what makes prayer hard, because the more you pray, the more you see the emptiness inside of you, the more you see the ugliness. And people want to block this out. And so Satan has led each and every one of us on this path. And, and he loves the idea that we can be good. He loves that idea. The problem is there's only ever been one good person. And it's not you and it's not me. The second thing the world needs to hear is that God can give you a new nature and a new life. Man, people need to hear this. I talk to so many people who are trying to get right with God, trying to get on his good side, getting on the religious treadmill. And the beauty is, all God wants you to do is come to him. That's all he wants you to do. We who were dead in trespasses and sins, he wants to make us alive for the first time. Now, I, I became alive spiritually the first time in 1983. Call it transformation, spiritual regeneration, born again, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I knew I was in touch with a personal God. I could hear his voice. He spoke to me through scripture, street signs. Uh, I, I was alive. I don't know any other way to, to put it. That's why so many people in this room can give you the time of demarcation, the was now condition. We were lost and now we're found. Now, I understand people are raised Christians. I understand it's a process for some people. I get all that. But I think of Franklin Graham's testimony, the son of Billy Graham. Grew up in the Graham house. If you read his biography, he was an ornery kid. He was the worst of the Graham's kids. And as an early 20-something, he was working in his dad's ministry. And Billy came to him and said, son, you can't work in the ministry anymore because I don't believe you're a Christian. 
Only Christians can work in this organization, so you're going to have to go out and find other employment. What, a, what an upstanding thing for Billy Graham to do. And Franklin wrestled with this, and one night after a crusade in his hotel room, he got down on his knees and he prayed the sinner's prayer. Do you know what verse ministered to him? Unless a man be born again, he'll never see the kingdom of God. God broke through and revealed to him that being the son of Billy Graham wasn't good enough. Just like going to church isn't good enough. I think it was Keith Green who said, you know, sitting in a McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Sitting in your garage doesn't make you a car. There has to be a spiritual rebirth. Well, how does this happen? Two words. Underline them, put them on your forehead. Verse four, but God. But God. God has allowed people to do his work in the world, but he's left one thing unto himself, and that's regeneration. Only God, through the seed of his word, can change a human heart and mind. Only God could take a woman, Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons, and make her the first one to see the resurrected Christ. Only God can make a vicious tax collector come out of a tree and become a generous man. Only God. But God, who's rich in mercy, who loved us when we were unlovable, by grace he saved us. I marvel how all the years, when I was doing my own thing, cursing God, doing whatever I was doing, God was always there. God loved me when I was dead in trespasses and sins. He loved me when I was lost. He loves each and every one of us. He's not far from each and every one of us. He's always been involved in our lives, always wooing us into his kingdom. The beautiful thing is when you come to Christ, when the heart makes this belief and the, and the mouth makes this confession, you know, this wonderful mystical salvation occurs where there's this weight that's lifted because we realize that he's taken our sin and he's thrown it as far as the east is from the west. And he's made it white as snow. It's called a brand new start. It's called born again, a second life, whatever you want to call it. There's no more guilt, no more shame. The Bible says a bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flask he will not quench. That should be wonderful news to everybody in this room, that everything we've ever done has been done away with, and we get a brand new life. When I became a Christian in 1983, I was convinced I joined a revolution and I was also convinced when I went to church that that's where I would meet other revolutionaries and that's where we plotted the revolution. That's what church was to me. Now, I never got anything out of church. I didn't want to be in church. I would never, it would be the last thing I'd ever circle that I would do for a living. But church took on new meaning when I found out that revolutionaries gathered there. Where we had this mission to go in all the world to, to, to bring people to salvation. I wanted to be a part of that. Here was my thinking. For 21 years, Satan was leading me on the wrong road. I now wanted to go on the right road and bring as many people as I could. And you think, well, revolution, that's a scary term in today's political climate. Realize Jesus was the ultimate mystic and the ultimate revolutionary. And it's the two things people are looking for, by the way. 
People either are looking for some mystical, wonderful experience, right? That's why they do yoga or go to psychics or get in touch with themselves, contemplative studies, all these different things. They want a transcendent experience. And then on the other side, they want a revolution, right? Why else would young kids follow Bernie Sanders, right? He's offering a revolution. Do you realize Jesus was the perfect mix of those two things? Now, Jesus was very practical when he taught, but every once in a while he throws something out like this. Man, I, I wish I could do this as a Bible teacher. You know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What? <laughs> um, and before Abraham was, I am. Jeez. Like, you don't get any more mystical than that. How about this for a revolutionary? My kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my, my followers would fight for it. And behold, I go and prepare a place for you and, and, and you know, the end of the world. And I mean, it was like, whoa, look what we've joined. But Jesus wasn't an extremist like the zealots. He didn't want to overthrow Rome. He wasn't political. It wasn't on his agenda. He didn't offer an ideology or a new form of government. He offered himself. And it's what made him different from anyone who ever come before him. He would become the sacrificial lamb who would give his life as a ransom for many. Three short years on earth. And then he would pass on to his followers a great commission to go all, in all the world. And they have, and Christianity has been the single greatest force for change and life on this planet. The early believers saw church way different than we do. The 120 that went to the upper room uh, that day uh, didn't go there and say, you know what, they got a great children's program. I think I'll stick around. They didn't check out the youth group, the printed material. They were in a climate where they were just trying to survive, but they went there because there was a promise of a supernatural experience that would come upon them. The Holy Spirit would become the prime mover of the early church. People with no money, no power, and no influence. The book of Acts says, turn the world upside down. That was church. And I'm amazed how many people say, well, yeah, we picked this church because our kids like Sunday school. I got to tell you, you got to pick church based on, are you getting fed? Is there a mission on the wall? Is there a reason to be there? Is there a revolution or what we would call a revival about to break out? Because that's why the early church got together. Otherwise, I don't know what we're doing. When transformed people who have been made alive lead churches, revolutions happen. Revival breaks out. When non-regenerate people lead churches, we call it religion. And I think most of us got out of that, right? Jesus said, if the blind follow the blind, they both fall into the ditch. The world needs to hear no one's good but God. And the world desperately, desperately needs to hear this third thing. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know that verse gets me up every morning? It's an amazing verse. We all know in Genesis 1 and 26 that human beings were made in the image of God. That's why they're valued. And even though sin marred that image, we've been wonderfully remade in Christ if you're a Christian. 
But human beings made in the image of God could never be saved by good works. In fact, the Bible's greatest metaphor on that is if you took all your good works, all your church attendance, all the money you gave to church, and piled it all the way up to God, you know what it would look like to him? The Bible says filthy rags. Now, without understanding what's behind that, you get the idea, like dirty kitchen rags, change the oil, dirty rags. Like, it fits, right? But do you know the metaphor is amazing because it's use menstrual rags? I hate to say that on Sunday, but it's the greatest metaphor. Can you imagine if people understood that? We're not saved by our works. We're saved to do good works. God looked at you when you were dead in trespasses and sins and said, I want to take Joe and I want to make him an instrument of my glory, a vessel that when the world looks at him, they will be confounded. That was Dwight Moody, a shoe salesman with an eighth grade education, became one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the world. Now, this verse took on greater meaning when I found out the word there for workmanship is poema in the Greek, which means we are God's poems. And that took on more meaning when my third daughter became a poet. She writes five poems a day. She reads poems to people, anyone who will listen. On the recent snow day, I told my wife, why don't we get down and clean out the basement? So we went down and we were cleaning things out. My daughter found uh, an old box full of diaries and poems she had written as a 12-year-old. She began to read these poems, and in my mind I'm thinking, geez, I wish I could write like that now. She was 12. And my daughter, who's in college, said, I wish I could write like that in college. I get straight A's. It's unbelievable. I began to realize that poetry is an art expression where the canvas is words. In other words, the poet is using words to show forth an expression of the beauty they're creating. Then I thought of this verse and I thought, oh my gosh. God is writing our lives in such a way that we would bring honor to him. Some of you are contractors or craftsmen, painters or musicians or whatever you do for a living. And you realize every day when you walk in that giftedness, God is getting glory. He's working through you. Do you ever feel like I'm doing what I was created to do? That's God working through you. It's a wonderful thing. And we bring glory to him and we bring glory to others. The tragedy is that for the last 70 years in our government schools, we told our kids, you're not God's workmanship. You're not God's poem. Your life's not going somewhere. Because through the religion, and I said it, the religion of evolution that we've come from a common ancestor has basically meant to us that life has no ultimate meaning. And yes, you can still be moral, and yes, you can live an upstanding life, but at the end of the day, come on, if there's no God, everything's permissible, and you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and that's why capitalism now is so appealing to the world. John Gray is the professor of history and thought at the prestigious London School of Economics. He said, if you believe that humans are animals, there can not be a such thing as the history of humanity, only the lives of particular humans. If we speak of the species at all, it is only to signify the unknowable sum of their lives. As with other animals, some lives are happy, some are wretched. None has meaning that lies beyond itself. 
Grace said looking for meaning in the history is like looking for patterns in the clouds. Like, oh, that cloud looks like a dragon and that one looks like a pig. Nietzsche knew this, Grace said, but he could not accept it. He was trapped in the chalk circle of human hope and ambition. Now, I believe Professor Gray is probably a brilliant man. He's also what the Bible calls a fool. And I don't mean that disparagingly. You know, the fool says there is no God. And Romans says men professing to be wise, he's a professor, have become fools. Here's why he's foolish. He's telling me life has no history, no meaning, it's going nowhere. But how do I believe him or why should I believe him? After all, he wrote a book which chronicles the history and meaning of his life, but he's telling me there's no meaning in life, so why should I buy his book? It's illogically, it makes no sense philosophically. It's not coherent. His book has no meaning. He has no meaning if all of life has no meaning. And we're paying tens of thousands of dollars to send our kids to the best universities so they, we, they can be told they came from animals and then we're appalled when they act like them. We're telling them life's not going anywhere. No wonder they want a revolution. No wonder they want to drop out. No wonder they want to go on drugs. And then we tell them this. Now, look, life's not going anywhere and you came from animals, but, but you better be good. Be moral. Be good for goodness sake, right? You know, be good for some reason. Just make sure you're good. No matter how much this is shoved down our throats, God finds a way to break through. But God, who's rich in mercy, God breaks through that. He breaks through to every individual life. For the last 2,000 years, his mercy and love have broken through thousands. I want to end with what he did in the life of C.S. Lewis, who records his experience when he writes this. He said, an impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap, best of all. But God himself alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, that is quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when you have been dabbling in religion, man search for God, and you suddenly draw back, supposedly, supposedly we really found him. We never meant it to come to this. Worse still, suppose he had found us. That was my experience. I'm sure it's most of your experience. No one in this room found God. He found you. And by the way, that's as true for me, who has been serving God for 35 years. As, it's as true for me as the person who somehow is sitting in this room for the first time, who has never heard this before. You are not here by accident. You are here by design. And let me tell you something. The, wor the world is moving somewhere. The world started in the east. It's come all the way west. Read the book of Daniel. World-dominating Roman empires from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. And then God set the Jews aside, and now we're seeing a rebuilding, the, the iron mixed with clay, the European Union falling apart. Things are going the other way. History is moving somewhere. Jesus said when the time of the Gentiles was fulfilled, all things would end. We know where we came from. We know where this planet's going. 
The Bible says there's something for you to live out. You are God's poems. He is writing your life in such a way that gives you hope and brings glory to him. And never settle for anything less. And never believe the fiery darts of the enemy that you're worthless. Look, I look in the mirror just like you do. The guy I shave every day is a mixed bag of emotions and anxiety and sinfulness. And it's hard to believe God loves me with the love that he does. And we're all self-absorbed, right? Do you ever look at a photo? Oh, look at Uncle Joe in the photo. You're not looking at Uncle Joe. You're looking at you. Why is my hair that way? Why is my arm? My arm looks funny. Right? God, who is rich in mercy, loved us when we were unlovable. If you don't know Christ this morning in the way I just described, if you're banking on good works, you're in a whole lot of trouble. And it's not only trouble, it's not only avoiding hell, it's not only the afterlife. You know, when I witness to people, I want to tell them what they're missing now. There's a personal God who can be known, you can speak to, and his word speaks to us, and there's a wonderful plan to live out. We'll sing one final song, and when we're done, please come up, we'll pray with you. Uh, We'll give you Bibles and literature. Father, we thank you for this morning.